Good morning. My name is Steve Thompson, and I'm in the, one of the lay ministers and in the rotation here at Northfield Christian Fellowship, and I want to welcome you this morning. Today we are finishing up our series on kings, and um, you can't really talk about Ahab, that's, that's who I'm talking about, Ahab, without talking about Jezebel, and you can't really talk about Ahab and Jezebel without talking about the prophet Elijah. So this morning we will be in 1 Kings, uh, starting in chapter 16. You can find that on page 298 of your pew Bible. Before we begin, hearts together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to be together. And as we do so, we come here to proclaim that you are God, that you are our God. And our God reigns. Lord, it is your desire that each person can say with confidence that the Lord is God. And that the Lord is my God. So may it be so. In the name of Jesus, amen. In 1 Kings, just as a quick overview, it opens with the Hebrew nation in all its glory. And by the time we reach the end of 2 Kings, it is a nation in ruin. At the beginning of 1 Kings, we find that David is now old. And verse 10 of chapter 2 records his death. David ruled for 40 years. In chapter 3, we read of Solomon's prayer for wisdom and God's gracious gift of a wise and a discerning heart. Jumping ahead to chapter 6 recounts the beginning of the building of the temple. From the laying of the foundation to its dedication, it took seven years and six months. In chapter 8, the ark is brought into the temple and the temple is dedicated and there's a very lengthy prayer in um, 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 22, it is a remarkable prayer and the magnitude, the dedication ceremony itself um, was 22,000 oxen were sacrificed that day. 120,000 sheep. So courts of the temple were consecrated to handle the volume. Sadly, in chapter 11, Solomon turns from God as a result of his loving many foreign women. Later in chapter 11, is recorded the death of Solomon. He ruled for 40 years. And in chapter 12, sadder yet, we see Israel, the kingdom divided into the north, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin forming Judah. The northern kingdom lasted a little over 200 years and was destroyed by Assyria. And the southern kingdom lasted 300 and was ultimately destroyed by Babylon. So what about King Ahab? What about this guy? Well, you don't have to get very far into 1 Kings. And in verse 30, you find he was evil. 
more so than all of the kings before him. He married a woman by the name of Jezebel. Her name means Baal exists. She was the daughter of a Sidonian king. His name Baal. Are you picking up on a theme here? His name means man of Baal. So here you have the king of Sidon. I'm a man of Baal. I have a daughter. Her name's Jezebel. And her name means Baal exists. You know, it's too bad that uh, the, the name Jezebel really is... No one names their baby Jezebel, do they? It hasn't made the top ten of uh, baby names now for a long time. And it's sad, really, because it's kind of a, it could be a pretty name, couldn't it? Jezzy, Belle. Uh, but it's, it's, it's come to be synonymous with wickedness, vile temperament. And Belle was all of that. Coming into this marriage uh, with Ahab, uh, she brought with her a not only a propensity and a favor toward idolatry and worship of Baal in particular, she came at it with a vengeance. The name Baal was a false god and was believed to be the god of nature. Interestingly, was known as the storm god, sometimes depicted as holding a lightning bolt in his hand. Remember that, it'll come in handy in a few minutes. Baal's counterpart or consort, if you will, was Ashereth or Ashtoreth, a female goddess of fertility. And when Jezebel came into Samaria as the wife of Ahab, she brought with her 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Now, it's one thing to kind of make your case, you know, uh, you've got Yahweh and you've got Baal and Ashtoreth, uh, but she did far more than that. She sought to slaughter the prophets of the Lord. Some compromised their convictions and perhaps spared their life, but there were a hundred prophets of God hidden in caves, two groups of 50, and were fed and cared for by a godly servant of Ahab by the name of Obadiah. There's some things we can learn from Ahab and Jezebel, but none that you would want, nothing you would want to emulate. Can I say that? So all of you uh, who have been to a marriage conference, they, they, they don't bring up this couple, do they? Self-willed people demanding their way, certainly far from the love that we read about in Corinthians, not seeking its own. They both sought their own. They sought it in different ways, but they sought it nonetheless. Self-centered, selfish, self-willed. The primary palace was at Samaria, but about 25 miles north was a second, secondary palace. The weather was a little bit more temperate there, and... Um, Ahab decided uh, he'd like to have a vegetable garden at the palace at Jezreel. 
Now, I want you to think about how petty this guy is. So he goes to Naboth, who has a vineyard there, and says, I'd like to have your vineyard. Now, I'll, I'll pay you for it, by the way, because um, I want a vegetable garden. Well, Naboth declines, and not because he's being obstinate, but because the land is not for sale. The land belongs to God and is under the covenant relationship of Yahweh. It's not to be transacted like a piece of junk. Ahab goes back to the palace and sulks like a child. You know, there, there are two different kinds of strong-willed people. Sometimes strong-willed people, are, their actions, their attitudes are manifest in, in uh, anger and, and outbreaks of rage and in violence. But sometimes people who are self-willed, equally so, just manifest it differently. Sometimes the silent treatment, you know, the passive aggressiveness. Ahab was kind of a wimp in this marriage, but I just had this thought, I mean... You talk about spiritual leadership or headship or this guy's not even anywhere close. Jezebel's running the whole show and so he's sulking and pouting and Jezebel sees him and says, what, what, what's, what's wrong? I want a vegetable garden. You know, she says to him, you're the king. So she takes matters into her own hands, frames Naboth, has him killed. So that Ahab can have a vegetable garden. Elijah confronts Ahab over this and pronounces judgment against him. Elijah tells Ahab the dogs will lick your blood. He goes on, and as for Jezebel, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. In the slide here, I mention um, Ahab's repentance. I should have put a question mark by that. When Ahab's confronted, he, he actually is sorrowful. Um, and is humble. And he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he tears his clothes. And he goes around in a dig, the Bible says. Was this true repentance? He was sorrowful, but he didn't turn away. Was this a sorrow that leads to true repentance? I, I don't know exactly how to answer that question, but I will tell you, God recognized that he was humbled before him, and God in his mercy postponed the disaster in his day. There were many wars with Syria. You can read about them in chapters 20 through 22. And after about three years of peace, Ahab, Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, to join him in going to war with Syria over, guess what, a piece of land. Land known as Ramoth. Gilead. Now, 
Jehoshaphat is inclined to help. But he, he insists that Ahab inquire first for the word of the Lord. So Ahab gathers 400 prophets. Now, knowing that all had been slaughtered by Jezebel, save a hundred who are being hidden in caves, who are these guys? Folks, these are the prophets on the payroll. These are the paid prophets who tell the king whatever he wants to hear. And what do these prophets say? Good to go. Good to go. Go to war with, uh, go to war for this land. Now, the king of the, the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, says, well, wait, wait. He, he recognizes they, these guys aren't, these are just yes men. And so he asks this, is there anybody else we could ask? Is there another prophet of the Lord whom we may inquire? Ahab says, well, yeah, yeah, there is. There's this guy, Micaiah, uh, but, but I hate him. You know why? You know, he never prophesies anything good about me. I, I don't like that guy. He had the same view of Elijah, referred to him as the troubler of Israel. It reminds me of what Paul said in Galatians. Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Micaiah is retrieved from prison and ultimately, there's, there's some other twists and turns in that story, but ultimately prophesies that Israel will be scattered on the mountains of sheep without a shepherd. You know what Ahab said to that? I told you so. This guy never put about me. And put him in prison. Took him back to prison. So Ahab and Jehoshaphat go to war. Now Ahab knows that the Syrian army is going to be targeting him. So he decides to go into battle without his royal robes. Jehoshaphat wears his royal robes, but Ahab goes into the battle dressed as a common soldier. The Syrian army, Jehoshaphat, with the royal robes and assumed it was Ahab, and they, they were in hot pursuit. Jehoshaphat cried out, and when they realized that it wasn't Ahab, they turned back. Now get this, a certain man drew his bow at random. Do you remember that little ditty when you were a kid? I shot an arrow in the air, and where it fell, I know not where. That's this guy. 
the arrow hits Ahab. Now, that wouldn't be a problem ordinarily because Ahab's wearing the full, full armor. He's wearing um, scale armor, breastplate, whole nine yards. The arrow finds its way into the narrow opening between the breastplate and scale armor and delivers a mortal wound. Folks, that is the providential hand of God. Psalm 64 says, 64 7. God shoots his arrow. And they are wounded suddenly. Ahab told the driver of his chariot to remove him from the battle, and they propped him up in his chariot facing the battle and the blood. He bled out in his chariot. He died that evening in. Chapter 22, verse 38 says, They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. As for Jezebel, she lived another 14 years or so. And in 2 Kings, we learn that she was thrown from an upstairs window in the palace at Jezreel trampled by horses. Some commentators have said nothing left but the palms of her hand, the rest of her body eaten by dogs. That is the story of Ahab and Jezebel. Let's talk about the prophet Elijah. He came from Tishbe. That's why he was called a Tishbite. It's this. The Lord is God. Or, perhaps more accurately, the Lord is my God. He prayed for drought, trying to bring Israel back to the Lord. First Kings doesn't tell us how long the drought lasted, but James does. It lasted three and a half years. Farmers, three and a half years. Elijah was ministered to by ravens. You recall the miracle of flour and oil. The, the, the flour never, and the oil never ran out. Elijah raised the widow's son to life. This was the first recorded miracle in the Bible of someone, someone being raised to life, being raised from the dead. He defeats the prophets of Baal. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He was taken into heaven on a chariot of fire. He appeared with Moses at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, and Elijah plays a big role in end times prophecy. Malachi 4 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Today, we look at two clashing world views. 
I said worldviews because that's what people understand, but it's not just, well, what's your view of the world? Well, what's your view of the world? Well, here's my view of the world. We are talking about a clash of two kingdoms. We're talking about Baal exists and Yahweh is God. We have a lot of choices today, then as now, perhaps ever. Choices. Ultimately, the Bible draws a clear line between simply two. There are two gates. There are two destinations. There are two kinds of trees. There's two kinds of fruit. There's two kinds of builders. Satan comes to seek and destroy, and Christ comes to seek and to save. So, in this scheme of choices, which seem myriad, there are really only two. As Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else. Let's look at Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There's trouble. Ahab is confronted, or Elijah has confronted Ahab, and Elijah sets up a test and he lays out two options. Again, there's only two options. 1821, he tells the people if the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, and follow him. Fair enough? So how do we know? How do we know who is God? Baal or Yahweh? Here's the odds. 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah. 450 to 1. You know God God isn't uh, doesn't have a problem with those odds. You understand? So here's what they, here's the test. We're going we're gonna to set up an altar, two altars, and there's going to be an ox on each one. It's going to be prepared for sacrifice. Um, but there's no, going to be no fire. You can't light the wood. And whoever's God answers by fire, consuming the sacrifice is God. Okay, now, Elijah sets the whole thing up to advantage the prophets of Baal. First, they get to go first. You, you go first. They get to choose the ox. Now, if, if you're the storm god, this, this is right up your alley, right? And, you're, and you get the choice of ox, you can even pick the more pristine one, everything's going for you, and soon, as soon as Baal, you know, zaps this thing, it's over. Baal's God. Game, set, match, it's over. So here's the scene. The prophets of Baal prepare the sacrifice likely around 6 a.m. 450 of these prophets are screaming and dancing and imploring Baal to 
consume the sacrifice. This goes on for six hours. Until finally, Elijah can, he, he can't stand it anymore. Um, so much like David, who himself was a trash talker when it came to Goliath, you know, Elijah uh, brings forth his own brand of uh, sarcasm here when he says, you know, I think you need to yell louder. Um, you know, he, maybe he's on a trip. And in the best <laughs> sarcastic comment of all, he says, you know, well, maybe he's using the bathroom. And as I point out, if he's a male god, you know, he could have some reading material in there. It could be, could be a while. So then they ratcheted up. The prophets of Baal ramp it up. They've been at it for six hours. Now they start cutting themselves. You might ask, well, what, what, is, what, is, the, what is the significance of that? I, I, don't, I don't know specifically, but demonic worship often in, includes bloodletting. And there's something about that that strikes me as mocking the blood of Christ. The precious blood. Blood is precious. But they began to cut themselves. This went on for another three hours. So now you've got nine hours of this going on. And Baal doesn't answer. Why? Because Baal doesn't exist. Baal is a false god. Elijah's turn. And he made... He gave every advantage to the prophets of Baal, and now Elijah's going to make it hard for God. The first thing he does is he repaired the altar. Be assured, there were no altars left intact in Israel to the persecution of Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And he rebuilt the 12 stones symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, almost as if to say, look, do you remember who you are? And likely alluding to this divided kingdom. He prepared the sacrifice. He laid it on the wood, on the altar. Then he poured 12 pitchers of water on the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and there's a trench around the altar. Primarily for blood. So much water that the trench was filled with water. In chapter 18, verse 36, Elijah the prophet came near. And this is his simple prayer. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. I envision it was getting along about evening, dusk, and God answers by fire fell, and the ox was consumed, the wood was consumed, the stones were consumed, the dust, the dirt, the stones sat on, and all the water in the trench 
gone. Wow. Do you, would you love to see that? Is that a story waiting for a movie? And what did the people say? How did they respond? The Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. Elijah then had the prophets of Baal slaughtered at the brook of Kishon. Here's our truth to life. First of all, regardless, God always maintains a remnant. 1 Kings 19, 18 tells us that there were 7,000 people in Israel at that time that did not bow the knee to Baal. God always makes himself known. And where there is a Jezebel and a wicked king, though he may be more wicked than all before him, God raises up an Elijah. The people responded, the Lord is God, and that's good. You know, today, in a way, they say there is God, or they believe in God. Gallup polls look at this every few years, and it's not a simple question. Um, Do you believe in God? Uh, Do you believe there is a God? Which God do you believe in? Are you absolutely sure? Do you have some doubts? I mean, there's a lot of layers to it, but it would be generous to say that about... 66% of the population, by by the most recent Gallup poll, believe in God or believe there is a God. To which I always say, that is 33% less than the demon who know 100% all of the demons believe. So it's not really a high bar. Believing there is a God, or even even saying that the Lord is God, isn't quite enough. You see, God isn't interested in coming out on top of, of some contest or coming in number one in an opinion poll. Can you confess today that the Lord is your God? different. And the people, even in Elijah's day, proclaim that the Lord is God. But unlike Elijah's name itself, which means the Lord is my God, they fell just short, didn't they? I hear often, if, if he's God, why doesn't he show us a miracle? Like the one he did on Mount Carmel. Have you ever wanted him to do that? Have you ever wanted him to do that? I I have. Oh, yeah, it would be good right now, God. Bring it. And then we could say, see, I told you he's God. The people of Jesus' day wanted that too. Nothing's changed. They wanted a sign. They wanted a miracle. And you know what Jesus told them in Luke 11? You're not going to get one. Except this, the sign of Jonah. Wait a minute, that, that, that was Old Testament stuff. What, no, the sign of Jonah. Alluding to his own death, burial, and resurrection. That's the miracle. 
That's the sign. You know the problem with miracles? Even like this one in, in 1 Kings? The fire burns out. And then it's gone, the next one, and we seek experience after experience. But the kind of fire that God provides to each of us in this day is a new heart. The miracle of a new heart, a new person, a transformed life. And false gods never can deliver it. It doesn't matter how loud we scream, how fervently we dance, or even if we go to the extreme of letting our own blood. The one true God always answers a simple prayer from a broken and contrite heart. God can do that miracle if he chooses. But let me ask you this. Which is the greater miracle? Burning up the temporal or rescuing the eternal? The Lord is God. Is the Lord your God? Our God reigns. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and close. And as, as they share this song, I would challenge you. Can you say with confidence, not just, yes, the Lord is God. But can you say with confidence that the Lord is my God? He reigns today as he's reigned since the beginning of time and he will reign for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you indeed reign on high. You're the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, and the great miracle, Christ death, burial, and resurrection, now seated at the right hand of the Father and imploring each and every one of us to come, to acknowledge that you are indeed our God. In Jesus' name, amen.